0: Yeah.
1: have certainly got into the spirit, but have you? Yes, if yesterday was all about the death of our last monarch, today has been very much about introducing our new one to discuss all of the day's developments. I'm joined by Aaron Bastani. Have you learnt the words to our new national anthem, Aaron? Just about. Took a while, but we got there. I only know about eight words of the, the national anthem, so it does count as, as one-eighth of the words having changed. Prince Charles is now King Charles III, and around an hour ago, he gave this
0: as his first address to the nation. I pay tribute to my mother's memory, and I honor her life of service. I know that her death brings great sadness to so many of you, and I share that sense of loss beyond measure with you all. When the Queen came to the throne, Britain and the world were still coping with the privations and aftermath of the Second World War and still living by the conventions of earlier times. In the course of the last 70 years, we have seen our society become one of many cultures and many faiths. The institutions of the state have changed in turn. But through all changes and challenges, our nation and the wider family of realms, of whose talents, traditions, and achievements I am so inexpressibly proud, in a little over a week's time, we will come together as a nation, as a commonwealth, and indeed a global community, to lay my beloved mother to rest, In our sorrow, let us remember and draw strength from the light of her example. On behalf of all my family, I can only offer the most sincere and heartfelt thanks for your condolences and support. They mean more to me than I can ever possibly express. And to my darling Mama, as you begin your last great journey to join my dear late papa, I want simply to say this. Thank you. Thank you for your love and devotion to our family and to the family of nations you have served so diligently all these years. May flights of angels sing thee to thy rest.
1: That was part of King Charles's first address to the nation. As King Charles, it was about ten minutes long. Um, I actually thought it was a bit more listenable to than lots of the, the speeches we've heard from politicians and news anchors, which I found all a little bit a bit cringe over the past twenty four hours. Also, I mean, the moments where I'm going is when he's just sort of proud of all the talents of his subjects. I find it, I mean, very presumptuous. But I suppose being a hereditary monarch is a pretty presumptuous role to find oneself in. Aaron, what did you make of that speech?
0: It
2: embodied a lot of the things which have kind of surprised me over the last day, I suppose. It was quite understated. It was quite humble. And clearly, there's been a lot of thought put into the tone of his accession and Charles III becoming the the king of the United Kingdom. I think a lot of us probably thought prior to yesterday... Oh goodness me! What's what's the reaction going to be like when Queen Elizabeth II dies? She's going to have been on the throne for a long time. Ultimately, it was seventy years. And actually, okay, take away some of the sort of virtue signalling you see from brands on Twitter or the Premier League deciding to cancel football games this weekend. Actually, the organic response from people generally is is quite understated. I mean, I, that's my, also my personal experience. Not just what I'm observing online. It's my personal experience too. And I'd I'd be interested in the feedback of our of our audience this evening and and, and how they're reading the situation at present. And I thought he grasped that quite well. I thought there was a a relatively apt capturing of the zeitgeist for him. He didn't, you know, go completely overboard. I mean, hold it in contrast to what you're seeing right now from the Labour Party, which I just find extraordinary, which is all of them have these black avies for their Twitter profile pictures. You know, not even the Prime Minister has that. Liz Truss still has her picture. But Labour have decided to do their own kind of strange corporate branding exercises around what happens when the queen dies he very much demurred from that obviously a personal story because it is it's his mother and like i say understated and a message of service now i say this as a republican i don't think the royal family serves the, the body politic i think they would be better placed as private individuals enjoying their lives clearly it gives rise to very dysfunctional behaviors and and lifestyles frankly um you only need to sort of you know watch seasons one two three four five of the crown or even just have a passing you know, interest in their affairs. But it, like I say, I think there was a certain capturing of the zeitgeist. And I think Charles is going to be a very different creature to, to his mother in a number of ways. But I think that very unequivocal, explicit nod to service is, is, is far more evident than it was with his mother and his dad. I think because it has to be. You know, He lives now in an era of 2022, tabloid journalism, social media. That stuff has to be incredibly overt and above board, you know, that can't be implicit. I'm living public service. He has to talk about it 24 hours a day, because that's ultimately the basis of, of consent for the royal family in this country. I it sounds a strange thing. It's not a democratic institution, but ultimately a constitutional monarchy does rest on a basis of consent.
1: I suppose it's also very helpful for the royal family that everyone else is going a bit more overboard than they are. So the BBC sounds completely ridiculous next to, to, to well, King Charles now. So sort of listening to that, you feel, oh, this sounds kind of understated because you've been hearing the, the complete nonsense that's been coming out of BBC Radio and BBC News for the past 24 hours, which I personally have found somewhat unbearable. And we are going to talk a bit more about that in a moment. First of all, let's see what else King Charles has been up to today. So at around lunchtime, he was driven to Buckingham Palace there. He met some pretty keen looking people crowds. They were kissing his hand and singing God Save the King. In the afternoon, Liz Truss went to meet him for her first audience with the king. Tomorrow is the bigger day though. That's when he'll be proclaimed king. So he already is, but it's sort of a a formality. This will involve a proclamation being read to the public at St. James's Palace, followed by further proclamations being made around London and across the country. After that, from Monday, Charles will tour the country, visiting each of Scotland, Wales, and Northern Ireland. And we can expect lots more images of him meeting crowds, as one of his advisors told The Guardian in 2017. From day one, it is about the people rather than just the leaders being part of this new monarchy. Lots of not being in a car, but actually walking around. It is see and be seen. Charles will then return to London for the Queen's state funeral, which will probably be held on the 19th of September. Now that quote from Prince Charles's advisor, or then Prince Charles's advisor from 2017, I think is interesting, because this is from a long time ago. You know, you can see how much planning has gone into this. And it's explicitly saying they had strategized all of this so he would meet lots of crowds, because they want him to seem in touch with the people. I think it's quite smart. I think the choreography, you know, they have done quite well with it. What's funny, though, is if you listen to BBC Radio today, they're all saying, I I think they sort of explicitly were discussing, would he have planned that? Would he have planned to have got out of the car and, uh, you know, shaking hands with people? They're like, oh, no, he definitely wouldn't have planned it. That would have been a discussion in the car, perhaps. But that would not have been part of the plan. It's like, no, this is everything you see over the next two weeks. Everything, down to the finest detail, is part of the plan. That that was not spontaneous. So you know, obviously it seems to have gone down quite well. Obviously, instead of going straight through in a car, you shake people's hands. And I mean, I found it a little bit gross They're sort of kissing his hand and singing God save the king, but I'm sure the royal household will be pleased with it. Aaron, what can we look forward to, if that's the word, over the next couple of weeks, when it comes to sort of Prince Charles introducing himself as as king? Is there... Is there anything that could be out of the ordinary or do you think it all just is going to be choreographed and we could basically predict everything that's going to happen right now?
2: Well, I don't think we can predict everything that's going to happen because like you say, Michael, they're trying to make an impression really quickly. And this has to be you know, really, really clear. They are trying to make an excellent first impression because if you don't make an excellent first impression as king, you aren't going to get a second chance. That's hugely important. If you look at the constitutional crisis, which really comes out of the, the death of Princess Diana in 1997, very quickly the royal family saw themselves in a bind and they were, they were having to engage with something which was without precedent, namely rising public unpopularity. And I think that taught them a bunch of lessons in regards to PR, the importance of consent from the public, how they can't just take public relations for granted, how they can't just take the idea of popularity for granted. Of course, that had been thought about for, for decades and centuries prior. But I think in the age of television, they saw the charismatic populism of Tony Blair. They realized how volatile public opinion can be in a very new way, in a way that wasn't the case in an age of deference, say, prior to the 1980s, 70s, 60s, when, of course, she uh, came to for instance in 1952. A very, very different world. And so I think from that experience, like you say, there's this highly choreographed accession you get with Prince Charles and that first impression is going to be hugely important. Today, this week, this month, they will be gritting absolutely everything, making the best possible first impression. I mean, when he was shaking hands at um, Buckingham Palace, Michael, one thing I noticed, for instance, maybe I'm overreading it, is that he wasn't next to Camilla. I think she was maybe slightly behind him. She just wasn't in shot. Clearly, they're probably aware of, I think, negative, for now, negative sensibilities around Camilla relating to, to King Charles. And of course, what happened with Princess Diana. And again, I think they've probably accounted for that too. But I don't think that makes it predictable. I think he clearly wants to stamp his mark on this. He's a he's an individual, right? He's his own person. He's had to live in his own mother's shadow his entire life, you know, for 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 70 odd years. He's an older man. He might not be in this position for more than 10, 15 years, and he's gonna, he's gonna want to make the role his own. And he is quite an eccentric figure. You know, he does have some kind of (laughs) strange uh, ideas and he's sort of, he's his own man and he knows what he thinks. And I think he's going to try and bring that to the role. Now, you might be watching this and thinking, well, why Navarro talking about, you know, he's a strange man, who cares what Prince Charles thinks? Well, there is a tension there between his constitutional role being above politics, not being seen to intervene in, in sort of democratic affairs of the country, to not really have opinions on things generally. And then the reality of the fact that Prince Charles or King Charles III now is actually a highly opinionated man on many, many things. Architecture of Poundbury, you know, nature and conservation. You know, like I said, the built environment and conservation of the, the big two. So I find that really interesting, Michael. You know, we might have a monarch who has really strong opinions about architecture and things being built. And I'm sure in, in some instances I might even agree with him. Often I won't. That is a real challenge for, for a liberal democracy, which is what Britain pertains to be. I mean, it's a question of whether or not we are, given the head of state is unelected. Our second chamber is unelected. You know, we don't have uh, a particularly democratic system for electing parties to Westminster. But I think, you know, that is the conversation we may find ourselves moving to. He may want to be this expansive, interfering monarch. I'm sure his court, courtiers are saying, please don't do that. And then, of course, the rest of us probably want a bit more of a If you're not a Republican, you certainly don't want the hangers on like Prince Andrew and Prince Michael of Kent and all these other people living the life of luxury at the behest of the taxpayer. I think even people who support a constitutional monarchy want it pared down and don't want to be paying money for people and their kids and their grandkids who they don't know the first names of. So it's an interesting tension there, I think, probably for the next, not just year, the next several years.
1: Well, I'm sure at least over the next couple of weeks, we are going to be talking more about King Charles, what his reign is going to look like. First, though, now, let's go back to the collective mourning of the Queen. And I have to say, on last night's show, I said I felt pretty open-minded about the whole thing. I wasn't personally mourning, but was happy to be a curious observer of people who were. But after a day of listening to the dross coming out of the BBC and the Houses of Parliament, it is already starting to grate a little on me. These were the words of Liz Truss, Boris Johnson and Keir Starmer in the House of Commons.
3: Her late Majesty Queen Elizabeth II, was one of the greatest leaders the world has ever known. Yeah. She was the rock on which modern Britain was built. She came to the throne at just 25, in a country that was emerging from the shadow of war. She bequeathed a modern, dynamic nation that has grown and flourished under her reign.
0: For the 70 glorious years of her reign, our Queen was at the heart of this nation's life. She did not simply reign over us. She lived alongside us. She shared in our hopes and our fears, our joy and our pain, our good times
1: and our bad.
0: Think what we asked of her in that moment, not just to be the living embodiment in, in her DNA of the history and continuity and unity of this country, but to be the figurehead of our entire system, the keystone in the vast arch of the British state, a role that only she could fulfil because in the brilliant and durable bargain of the constitutional monarchy, only she could be trusted to be above any party
1: political or commercial interest. And those speeches were met with almost universal acclaim from political journalist Beth Rigby of Sky called Boris Johnson pitch perfect and Keir Starmer's speech moving, eloquent and evocative. I found it all a little bit trite, especially Liz Truss. She was one of the, she was the greatest leader the world has ever known. Like it sounds like something written by, by children. In any case, the thing that's really annoyed me today isn't anything that's been said, but rather the things that have been cancelled. The Premier League has postponed its matches this weekend, long after people will have arranged their transport. The Trade Union Congress has postponed its annual conference, presumably costing hundreds of delegates their accommodation fees. And the one that's dearest to my heart, they've cancelled Hackney Carnival this Sunday. It was, supposed to be, it was going to be a very, very good event. Loads of people have planned their stores, loads of people have planned their days, big performances, they can't postpone it to later in the year because it's the end of summer. Why? Aaron, are you as annoyed as I am? What's the point of this rush to cancel everything? And in, in what way is this how we're supposed to mourn someone?
2: Well, it's important to say not everything's being cancelled. So the cricket was cancelled today, but it's not cancelled tomorrow. I believe there's rugby tomorrow. And again, it's important to say that, you know, the government advice on this was, particularly with sporting institutions and sporting events, was use common sense. We're not going to tell you what to do. It's not a top-down thing. Which, had you asked me that two, three months ago, or two, three days ago, I would have I would have just suspected the government had a line and they would have told people what to do, but apparently it seems there's a lot of carte blanche elasticity in this. That can't just be a press line because we're seeing the difference in different industries, right? Racing, cricket, rugby, yes. Hackney Carnival and football on Saturday, no.
1: The sports you name that are going ahead are, to me, a lot more royalist than the Premier League and Hackney Carnival. So I wonder if one of the reasons that the Premier League and Hackney Carnival are so keen to cancel themselves is because they're not as sure as the cricket and rugby bodies that the people there will be 100% respectful towards the Queen, because that's what is being demanded of us. You cannot have one in 100 people in the crowd refusing to stand up for the minute's silence. So I, I wonder if it is the more royalist things, or you know, the kind of events where people are more of that class, where they they're very much into the royal family. Do you think they're going ahead because people are more relaxed that there won't be a, an embarrassing moment there?
2: It's a really good question. I mean, ultimately, that's one read on it. But I I think realistically with the Premier League, you wouldn't have any problems. You would have Liverpool, right? You would obviously have the scenes, carnivalesque scenes at Liverpool, you know, which be completely, you know, out of keeping with the national mood, etc. Well, obviously not amongst those particular people. Like you say, that's not the majority of society, but it it does exist. It's important to say that, you know, polling shows, 25 to 32%, depends what poll you look at, are in favour of a republic. Just a fact, you know, and it's not nowhere near a majority, but it's obviously a significant minority of the population. And you get concentrations of those people in different parts of the country. I I think it's a good hypothesis, Michael. For me, instinctively, I thought it was just that the Premier League is a brand. And elite football in this country, unlike cricket and rugby, looks at itself as a sporting commercial venture. Fundamentally, it's business. And I think like a lot of these brands you see on Twitter, you know, Ann Summers sending their condolences to the Royal Family or, you know, Duplo. Or, uh, I don't know, some chocolate bar brand in the United States. I mean, it's just ridiculous. That is part of their sort of corporate social responsibility, public relations strategies. And I think the Premier League is very much in that world. And I think once the Premier League made that decision, I may be completely wrong, the Football League, the lower leagues made their decisions too. I I do find it very, very strange because, of course, what you've got now, you've got two weeks off for the Premier League, then you've got the international break. And then you've got, you know, we're not going to see any Premier League fixtures now, I think for three weeks. It's quite a long time. And of course, those games are going to have to be played anyway. It's putting more stress on the footballers. I don't know in terms of, in terms of the, you know, stewards and so on. I presume that's day, sort of day rates. I presume that's zero hours contracts and so on. A lot of those guys, I mean, what do they do for work? And like you say, Michael, particularly of relevance to tomorrow and, and this weekend, people would have spent a lot of money to buy train tickets to go see their teams away. 100, 200 pounds. I mean, it might not sound like a, a lot of money. You might think, well, so what? The Queen's died. Well, I think that's quite unfair. You're telling tens of thousands of people, suck it up, when maybe that was their treat, and they don't do it very often. You know, In terms of the following weekend, because, of course, you know, it's around her funeral, that's a bit more explicable. But this drop of the hat sort of stunt from the Premier League and the Football League in relation to this weekend. I think, it's, I think it's absurd, frankly. And I think most football fans would agree with that. Even the ones who have a great deal of respect for the, for the monarchy and would call themselves royalists. I think the majority of them would say this is the wrong decision. You know, they can do a minute silence. They can have a black
1: armband. I, I feel like this could backfire for you know, the royalist establishment. I mean, I don't think there's going to be an upsurge of republicanism over the next two weeks. It seems somewhat unlikely to me. But I I do think that they could have had a win-win, let everything go ahead. And then, you know, the stadium is a good place to do a minute silence. And as you say, I mean, I imagine probably most people would have gone along with that in the Premier League. So actually, probably your corporate explanation is is quite on the money. The Premier League, because it is a big global corporation, they're obsessed with PR. People who are obsessed with PR tend to be quite conservative. If there's any sort of risk to the brand, they're going to go on the side of, oh, cancel it, cancel it. We, we, We don't want to be involved. I don't know how that explains Hackney Carnival, but there we are. I'll have, to, uh, I'll have to just get over that. We do actually, though, have some other things that have been cancelled. So it, it gets more ridiculous, in fact. Parliament um, has been suspended for 10 days, even though everyone else has to go to work. Decision making by the Bank of England is also gone. They've cancelled any judgments on interest rate rises until further notice. So it's like monetary policy has gone on hold. And as of today, you can no longer sign petitions on the government website. So in in respect for the constitutional monarchy, democracy has been suspended until she can be buried. All incredibly bizarre. Let's go to our next story. Lots of outpouring of grief for the Queen will be genuine. I know good people like my late grandma who really did look up to her. Some other reactions though have been positively weird. These are some of the most notable. So the first wave of weirdness came from journalists and Twitter personalities while news of the Queen's ill health spread. ITV's Robert Peston mawkishly tweeted this. A black cloud has descended on the Palace of Westminster after the troubling news about the Queen's health. Senior MPs from all parties look grey and solemn. So that's, again, some some top GCSE creative writing there from ITV's most senior political reporter. Give him a gold star. At the same time, others chose to lash out. Piers Morgan's son tweeted this. Sad thing is there will be people in this country celebrating this. They're the ones we need to focus on deporting. I suppose you can only blame the parents. But if anger is well known as a stage of grief, horniness is perhaps more unusual. Telegraph columnist... Andrew Lillico tweeted this. At times like this, one notices the details one might otherwise ignore, like how perfect her eyebrows are here. I really hope they give him a speaking opportunity at the funeral. The next round of weirdness came after the Queen had passed, when the baton was transferred to corporations almost immediately as news came in. Fast food giants changed their logos to monochrome And this is from Domino's. Everyone at Domino's joins the nation and the world in mourning the death of Queen Elizabeth II. Our thoughts and condolences are with the royal family. A really touching tribute there. Um, some even more out of place mourning came from Anne Summers. So if you went on their website yesterday, uh, you can see rest in peace, Queen Elizabeth II. Thank you, your majesty. And then underneath it, you can buy lingerie, um, or dildos. Um, in a mark of respect, LGBT clubs, including GAY and Heaven, closed their doors, to which someone replied, why would you close Heaven when she's trying to get in? It's a Very good point, well made. I think they're only closed for one night. She can have another go tomorrow. Um, and uh, as well as pizzas, lingeries and clubbing, the Queen's passing has also had an effect on weather forecast. The Met Office tweeted this, We are saddened by the death of Her Majesty Queen Elizabeth II. Our thoughts are with her family and all those affected by this news. As a mark of respect during this time of national mourning, we will only be posting daily forecasts and warnings. So as one Twitter user said today, ain't no sunshine when she's gone. If the sun comes out in the afternoon, you won't know because you only get one weather forecast a day in a mark of respect for the Queen. Of course, there is no need to fret, though. If you were worried about a dearth of information as to what's going on in our skies, you can always turn to the Daily Mail. This was their report. Astonishing moment. A cloud resembling Queen Elizabeth floats over English town just hours after she died. Phenomenal. And I've got just one more for you. This is Tracy Crouch, Tory MP for Chatham Aylesford, speaking in the Commons debate following the Queen's death.
3: Mr. stepped to speaker last night as we sat as a family and watched the news break of her death. Tears openly rolled down my cheeks and that of my other half. Our six-year-old took my hand in his and said, Don't worry, mummy. The king will look after us now. No. He is right. God save the king. Yeah.
1: Aaron, have we all become a nation of cringy corporations and, I mean... The House of Commons today is like nursery school. It's very, very embarrassing. Also, I could have yeah. picked hundreds more examples like this. I mean, it's, it's not very dignified, is it?
2: Michael, I've got a very simple question for you and all of our, our, our audience watching this evening. What the hell happened to this country? <laughs> what the hell? This is... A, my father's Iranian. He came to this country... And he came to a country. I mean, and this was his experience when he came here, right? Stiff upper blip, very reserved. You really can't read people. You know, really there's this veneer you can't get behind. It takes a while to get to know them. Now you've got somebody in parliament saying about how she was crying and she was comforted by her child, a parliamentarian. If you said that to my old man, you know, I was when I was young g- going to school, you still had the the old boys who'd done their national service. If they saw that on the TV, they would say, "Who the hell is this one? What, what is she doing in politics? I wouldn't want her representing me." And there is this very strange, like you say, mawkish sensibility, which has just become the norm. I don't know where it's come. I really don't know where it's come from, Michael. It's a complete inversion of all the stereotypes that the English, in particular, like to think about themselves. About reserved, you know. Oh yeah, the the Labour front bench is so reserved. All of them have got a bloody black avi as their Twitter profile picture. It's not. It's not a crowdfunding campaign for Amnesty International. The Queen died. You know. I think that's disrespectful. And I think the other things you've just talked about there are kind of disrespectful. And it's also the gratuitous self-praise. Oh, we're so humble. You know, we don't, we don't, we don't need anybody's like, you know, validation. That's all parliament seems to be at the moment, the last 24 hours is a constant exercise in self-validation. Wonderful speech by Boris Johnson. Liz Truss, two days ago, she's saying three days ago, we've had 20 years of low growth. Now she's saying we've had 20 years of prosperity and success. Which one is it? The Queen, wonderful range, you know, a fantastic era, a great time for the United Kingdom. Hold on, you were running for the Tory leadership, saying the last two decades have been a complete, complete shambles and a mess, and you wanted to sort Britain out. Which one is it, success or failure? Of course, the failure isn't. It's not. You know, Elizabeth II is not accountable for that. But it's it's just a very strange sort of rhetoric. It goes back to what you were saying earlier, Michael, about. Your hypothesis with the cricket not being cancelled, or that is important to say it's cancelled today, but not the football, is that maybe establishment figures can be a bit more certain about who they are and how they appear in times like this, so they, need, they can make maybe less effort. That's kind of how it reads to me until that Tory MP came up and she looked positively ridiculous. The idea you're being comforted by your child because a, a woman of 96 has died. I think most people in most places in history would find that rather, rather odd. Okay. I mean, maybe I'm being mean. Maybe I'm, I'm half Iranian. Maybe I'm more English than these people up here. I don't know. I find it very strange, Michael. And another thing as well is the, you know, the 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 thing from Piers Morgan's son is the sort of clout chasing that this entails. Oh God, these horrible leftists, let's deploy them. He's tweeting that to get clout and gain Twitter followers off the back of a woman dying who he claims, he claims to respect. I mean, he patently doesn't. When somebody dies who you respect, you don't start sending out tweets to get followers and get clout when he's checking the updates. How many likes and retweets have I got? That isn't respect. Something very strange has happened to the psyche of these people in the last couple of decades. Very strange. I'm a socialist. I'm a Republican. But it, it, it's pretty obvious to me as an observation that quite significant changes to the sensibilities of, of monarchists and conservatives, some, not all, Right. But in the establishment, the visible sort of rhetoric you see in the media and in politics, it's bizarre. And it's a million miles away from the myth making they like to tell themselves.
1: We're going to take a break from the royals to look at another very important story, probably a more important story, to be honest. On Thursday, before the death of the Queen interrupted politics as usual, Liz Truss announced her plans to deal with the energy price crisis. Here she is speaking in the House of Commons.
3: Earlier this week, I promised I would deal with the soaring energy prices faced by families and businesses across the UK. And today I am delivering on that promise. This government is moving immediately to introduce a new energy price guarantee that will give people certainty on energy bills. It will curb inflation and boost growth. This guarantee which includes a temporary suspension of green levies, means that from the 1st of October, a typical household will pay no more than £2,500 per year for each of the next two years while we get the energy market back on track.
1: The energy cap is currently set at around £2,000 per year, but was set to rise to £3,600 on the 1st of October. But under Truss's plan, it'll only go up to £2,500 per year in October. And it will be frozen at that level until 2024. In addition, the £400 payment announced earlier in the year will remain, meaning bills will only be slightly higher than they are now. Though that is still 50% higher than they were at the beginning of this year, many people already in energy poverty. Trust's package also had support for businesses and the public sector, which don't have a cap on their energy bills.
3: We will also support all businesses, charities and public sector organisations with their energy costs this winter, offering an equivalent guarantee for six months. After those six months, we will provide further support to vulnerable sectors such as hospitality, including our local pubs.
1: The government hasn't yet provided details of how much the plan will cost, but estimates are putting it at around £150 billion. That's a huge state intervention, more than twice the cost of the furlough scheme. Ultimately, most of that money will go directly into the pockets of the big energy giants. That's because the cash will be used to pay energy retailers. The difference between the wholesale price of energy and the £2,500 we'll see on our bills or on a typical bill. And the retailers will hand that money over to the energy giants when they buy the fuel. So Shell and BP will continue to rake it in just because the Russian invasion of Ukraine, along with some other factors, drove up the price of gas. Energy firms are forecast to make up to £170 billion in unexpected profits off the back of this crisis, but Truss does not want to tax them.
3: We will be bringing forward emergency legislation to deliver this policy. My right honourable friend, the Chancellor of the Exchequer, will set out the expected costs as part of his fiscal statement later this month. And I can tell the House today that we will not be giving in to the leader of the opposition who calls calls for this to be funded through a windfall tax. That would undermine the national interest by discouraging the very investment we need to secure home-grown energy supplies.
1: So why might Liz Truss be shielding the energy giants? She says it's because she doesn't want to discourage investment. But there's no evidence that taxing the unexpected and unearned profits of the giants will make other industries wary of investing in the UK, which makes me suspect something else might be going on. Information released just before her announcement might give a clue. These are the names of the donors who had given a total of £425,000 to her leadership bid. That's a hefty sum of money for an internal election. And one name in particular stands out. Fritriana Hay. She gifted Truss £100,000. Her husband, James Hay, is a former senior executive for, you guessed it, energy giant BP. Of course, James Hay isn't the only person who used to work for an energy giant. Truss herself worked for Shell for four years. As Zara Sultana put it, when Liz Truss rejects a windfall tax on the £170 billion profits of oil and gas giants, which they're expected to make, it's worth remembering. She's a former Shell employee whose party has taken more than £1.5 million in donations from the oil and gas industry since the last election. Aaron we sort of known the contours of this energy plan for a while now. Uh, that information about Liz Truss's donors, um, that's new. We only received that on, on Thursday. How significant do you think that is? Do you think the reason Liz Truss and Kwasi Kwarteng are refusing to put a windfall tax on those energy giants is because of financial links between energy firms and the Tory party or even Liz Truss's past employment at Shell?
2: Well, I don't think it's because purely of who funded her leadership campaign. The Conservative Party generally isn't that cheap. You know, the Labour Party is very cheap. You can give them a five grand bung, you can get quite a lot done with it. But the Tory Party is quite expensive, generally. The reason they have enacted the changes they have, a huge government intervention, as you said, could be 130 billion over 18 months, purely on um, on the price caps for energy. Isn't it interesting, by the way, Michael, you know, for decades, Western countries have been going into the global south with the IMF saying you you can't have price controls that's bad it's bad economics it's bad for the market if you want to be developed in a high income economy you can't do it sorry you have to have this uh, IMF adjustment program no price controls the second the shit hits the fan in britain with regards to energy the most right wing possible tory initiates price controls on energy because they know politically if they don't all hell will break loose that's an interesting observation i think in terms of why they've done it michael and on the tax side so The Labour plan is ostensibly the same, although it's only till Christmas. I find that a bit strange. But let's just say they have the identical plan for the next 18 months, which is a moderately progressive plan. Could be more progressive. It's moderately progressive. And you do what the Tories are saying, but it's entirely funded through some kind of increased taxes on fuel companies. You might want to do that as a windfall tax. I don't know how you would do it. But from what we understand, I think over the next 18 months to two years, there is talk of circa an extra 150 160 billion pounds worth of profits for the big energy companies so it's probably there right it's probably there the Tories haven't done that because they are the political expression and instrument of these precise interests so in a way yes that's why you get people like that funding liz truss that's why people like liz truss before being in politics work in the you know in the hydrocarbons sector but it's not just this quid pro quo transaction in this particular incident, oh, this is, you know, corruption. No, that is is the norm of the Conservative Party. And I want to give you an even more obscene example of this, Michael. So there was a donor, a major donor in 2014 to the Better Together campaign. I think he gave about half a million pounds to it. Now there is a very interesting connection between this gentleman donating money to that campaign and him getting the rights, and his oil company getting the rights to drill for um, oil in Libya in 2014. So the idea that this is a sort of you know uh, an anomaly, an insidious piece of corruption. I mean, I, I think it does speak to something which could be described as corruption, but it's it's deeply systemic. Now what's really interesting with with Liz Truss is that alongside that, I think. I mean, I could be wrong and Quasi Kwarteng, you have people who are also deeply ideologically wedded to free markets in a way that you haven't really had with Boris Johnson or even David Cameron or George Osborne. These are, these are ideologues who think about political economy and markets, much like Margaret Thatcher. And I think that alongside that enmeshing of interests, and the Tories being the political expression of the financial and economic elite, alongside that, I think they genuinely believe then it's actually in the public interest to not tax oil companies on profits. And actually, it's in the the common interest of everyone to not do that, because if you don't do that, then they'll have more money and they'll somehow invest it in things or the incentives to invest it aren't there. That's why we have corporation tax to incentivize investment. Otherwise, it gets taxed. But anyway, so it's quite complicated with them. I think on the one hand, yes, the Tories are an instrument of the ruling class. On the other, they're ideologues very interesting. You know, we're looking really, I've said this before, arguably the first ideological prime minister since Thatcher. I mean, you could say since Blair, but I think since Thatcher. And that's a really long time, you know. We're looking at 30 years where we haven't had an ideologue in power to this extent. So I think explaining it purely through malevolence and, you know, being deviant, I don't think that's quite right. I think she does believe what she's saying. A bit like Jacob Rees-Mogg too. And this whole hostile takeover we've seen of the Conservative Party by the Britannia unchained crew
1: Let's go straight to our next story. All dissenting narratives may have been banned from UK networks in the wake of the Queen's death. But in the USA, critical approaches to the Queen's legacy are, thankfully, still allowed.
2: You played a a clip of her speaking in... Cape Town in 1947
1: right, in
3: South
2: Africa. Right. That's the year apartheid took effect in South Africa. They, that was something the British colonialism ushered in. British colonialism, which she presided over for all these years, was, had a terrible effect on, on much of the world. It's something that people uh, revolt from. And I, I, have to say to the, your earlier question, why, why are news, American news networks uh, dedicating all of this time to Queen Elizabeth's funeral? I think it's a good question. I mean, uh, you know, I think it's something, there's a weakness in the American character that still yearns for that era of hereditary privilege, which is the very thing that, that we escaped from.
1: Pretty well put. Aaron, can you imagine anyone well, attempting to say that on the BBC or Sky or being allowed to say that on the BBC or Sky? I mean, if someone went on and sort of said that, there could be a whole
2: national scandal. You'd be in deep trouble, Michael. I think you probably wouldn't be able to go home for a couple of evenings if your uh, address was made public, if you said something like that on, on the BBC. And it's an important point. You know, he's talking about when she was 90, uh, She was 21 in 1947 from South Africa. She makes that speech about all, all the British nations or whatever. Basically, it's a very much a, an imperial register she's using. And of course, by 1952, that's, that's somewhat changed. She exceeds the throne. She's the queen of the United Kingdom of Great Britain, Northern Ireland, and its possessions, et cetera, et cetera but her two predecessors actually don't even have United Kingdom in their title. So you've very much gone to, and I'm not saying Britain doesn't have an empire after 1952, it does, but there's clearly a transition now to a a monarch who's overseeing ostensibly a unitary state of the United Kingdom and a few possessions, and that's a big, big shift away from what it was before the war of an empire. And even some of her predecessors were, of course, emperors. Now, here's something which is being missed, I think, in a lot of the coverage, and this gentleman highlights it very, very well, is that Britain's record after 1952, when she accedes to the throne, is not smelling of roses. We are not, you know, snow white here. If you look at the Mau Mau uprising in Kenya, now very well documented in recent years, you know, to the extent that actually there have been large payouts made to the victims of British aggression and humiliation in Kenya. Uh, That was from 1952 to 1960. There are some estimates, I think, Michael, of around 150,000 people dying. There were concentration camps. There's no other way you know, to, to talk about it. Incredibly violent treatment of people who just wanted democratic self-government. And that's from 1952 to 1960. You have other insurgencies in Aden and elsewhere. But in terms of the pure quantity of people suffering, like I say, we could be looking at 150,000 deaths. We are looking at concentration camps. That did happen under the British in the 1950s. It was a British colony. And so... I do think it's quite distasteful to say that somehow, you know, under her reign, everybody benefited. Just not true. That's just not true. And of course, that's a big, big step from what was the case before 1945 or 19th century British imperialism to the extent that you can have a British politician like Barbara Castle, Labour politician, go to Kenya and say, this is awful. This is no different to what was happening with uh, and And she, she made that comparison, by the way. The death camps that the Germans had run This is no different. That's what she said. That's the difference, of course, to the sort of variant of colonialism you see in the 19th century and the early 20th century. So I'm not saying nothing changed. Of course it changed. But Britain is not this nice, clean, lovely post-imperial power by 1952, particularly in places like Malaya, particularly in Kenya, Aden, and of course, Northern Ireland. But Kenya, I think, is the one that is so visibly brutal with, quite frankly, massive numbers of people being subject to extraordinary, unthinkable violence—that was under her right, saying she's responsible for it. But if we're trying to define and identify the contours of it politically, what changed, what didn't? Then I think you know you can't miss out things like the Mau Mau uprising, or indeed apartheid, as that gentleman said. Although again, a bit more complicated in South Africa because, of course, you know Afrikaners and, and English South Africans. There's a there's a linguistic, cultural differentiation there. But it was certainly aided and abetted by the British Empire right the way through even to the 1980s with Margaret Thatcher when she had really no problem with apartheid. So very well put. And I think to conclude, you could not get away with saying that on the UK media. Yeah, I think that, you know,
1: the point of, you know, obviously the Queen wasn't personally responsible for XYZ policy. Obviously, it's valid. But if you're going to take the good, you've also got to take the bad. So what we're hearing you know, on the, on the media uh, over and over again is how she has some sort of responsibility for all of the good developments that have happened in Britain over the past 70 years. Well, if that's the case, then she's also got to take some of the bad. How can she only be responsible for the good bits? Doesn't make any sense. We're going to go to our final story. Jackie Pickett is the owner of a fish and chip shop in the Scottish Highlands. And she has some pretty strong Republican views. This is the video she posted to Facebook after the Queen's death.
3: Woo-hoo-hoo! London, London, Britain, Next step, ladies and gentlemen. Next step. <laughs> Honest, I mean.
2: Now that
1: might not be to everyone's taste, but it's harmless, and people are entitled to their views. But in this atmosphere of enforced national mourning. The video managed to stir up a mob who soon surrounded her chippy. The Telegraph reported this. After the footage quickly spread across Facebook, a small crowd of outraged residents descended on the shop and hurled eggs at the premises and sprayed the windows with ketchup. There were reports that bricks were also thrown at her shop. And as the scene outside grew uglier, several police cars and vans turned up to provide the lady with a police escort to get her past the angry, jeering locals and to her home in Cromarty, a 30-minute drive away. On top of all of this, as if that wasn't enough, the National Federation of Fish Friars has revoked her membership, potentially affecting her livelihood. I think it just means she, gets to, she has to take down a sticker, uh, which is on the shop window. So not necessarily I'm going to put her out of business. Although, I mean, the people in the town seem pretty annoyed. Aaron, uh, what should we take from this? Should this be a lesson in being respectful when someone passes away that, lots of people care about? Or do you think this is hatred whipped up by the top-down state-enforced mourning, which can seem pretty coercive, and um, that we're all being subjected to over the past 24 hours?
2: And let's try and look at this objectively. You're looking at effectively two groups of people doing two sets of things. One is a woman who's made an offensive video. I, I can understand why that's upset people and angered them, and why you'd have a hostile response to it. I get that. And then the, re- the response is one which includes bricks being thrown at her and her shop and whatnot, and her potentially losing her livelihood. Is that an appropriate response? I would challenge any reasonable person to say, yes, that's an appropriate response. She made a stupid 15-second video, ill-judged. That's what, you know, that's what they would say. I presume if you think bricks should be thrown at her shop, I don't know how, what words you'd want to use, but that's how they would characterize it. Was it shouldn't have been made. Should that therefore mean that she, she can't earn a living? She has to literally move. I find that over the top. But again, I, I, don't, I, I, don't, I don't understand a lot of this country anymore, Michael. I don't. And it's strange for me as someone who's half Iranian. Generally speaking, people are quite understated. You know what's interesting is after I had that video with Poppygate, you remember? And you had edits made to the video. So it somewhat misrepresented what I said. But what I said was, you know, particularly with, um, with uh, the Invictus games, it's sponsored by arms dealers. It's ridiculous. It's ridiculous. These poor people have had huge life-changing injuries caused them and it's being sponsored by companies which profit from war. I find that utterly ridiculous. I could have vocalized it far better and articulated it more clearly and so on, but the point still stands. Now, I think maybe a night after that or two nights after that, and of course there was this massive hullabaloo, I did BBC Any Questions in Devon and did the event afterwards. And by the way, Ben Bradshaw was saying I should be no-platformed Labour MP. After the event, two two ex-military guys got chatting to them and they were taking the mickey out of me and we had a good chat. And they said, yeah, I agreed on this, disagreed on that. That's most people, Michael. That is most people. And you and I know this because we're in this world of, of the media. You've got people on the left, people on the right, people on the center. And generally speaking, the reaction you've seen there is not normal. That kind of whipped up mop hysteria is not normal, particularly when, when you're dealing with specific individuals. So I feel really sorry for that woman because I, th- I think it was ill-judged. I mean, I think, I think whenever somebody dies, you shouldn't sort of be overwhelmingly happy about it. But then, of course, I can say that and be a hypocrite because when Margaret Thatcher died, I was celebrating in Brixton. Not massively over the top, but I was just there with others and saying, okay, this is an interesting social phenomenon. Margaret Thatcher, who really did a lot of damage to this country, passed away and, and, and just observing it. There may have been a bit, a bit of party, might have cracked open a couple of beers, but I would be a hypocrite if I said, that's awful because I've done that with, with Margaret Thatcher. And I'm sure many of those people in that video have, have celebrated somebody dying because they didn't like that person. So, you know, the principle is there that clearly, if if we think it's permissible to do that, then she shouldn't be losing her livelihood, have to move, have bricks thrown at her and so on. And the thing you said about the um the fish and chip shop and she's lost her accreditation, I mean, presumably, Mike, I'm going to come back to you on this one. Presumably, that is more than just a sticker. You, you're paying your like £20 a month subs just to put a sticker on your window. I don't know. I mean, I could be wrong. That sounds deeply unhealthy. If it, she hasn't even had the opportunity to apologize yet, I mean... If if she apologises, okay, not no harm done, but you can see a way back for her. She can apologise to people. She can be a bit of a pillar of the community. It can be worked out. I'm sure people smash the windows once every couple of years or whatever. But the idea that you're cancelled, I just where has this come from? To the extent that you've got trade bodies doing it, it's incredible.
1: The the reason I assumed it was maybe just a sticker is because I mean obviously your license as a fish and chip shop owner is the same as the license for someone who owns a Chinese restaurant. So, you know you don't you don't need to be part of. You know, uh, uh, like a a, a weird cabal club. You don't get shut down if you're not a member of this particular fish frying organization. Maybe you get discounted fish. I don't know. You you probably go in some sort of brochure. I don't know. But I, I feel like I've never gone to a fish and chip shop and known whether they were part of the National Association of Fish Fryers or not. Uh, but I suppose going back to the serious point, I mean, obviously, it's very unpleasant. You're absolutely right. And I do think even though, you know, the BBC and um, politicians, no one is saying go and exert mob justice on anyone who's disrespecting the Queen. I do think the overbearing attitude where we only hear one perspective and n- nothing else is allowed to be heard does create a bit of a hysterical vibe in the country. and I, I, I think that's what they're proactively trying to do. And in a way, I feel like the BBC, politicians, what they want to see is a moment of sort of collective mass grief. I have to say, I haven't actually seen it yet. So we're constantly seeing footage outside Buckingham Palace. I mean, there are people there, but it's, it's not exactly rammed, right? We might see this. We, we, we might well see this next week. I imagine, you know, when there is the moment where the Queen's coffin is there and, and people get to walk past her. I mean, I have no doubt loads and loads of people will go to that. But I do feel like there is a real top-down attempt to get us all into this collective, whipped-up moment. And that does make it difficult for anyone to demur from that. And I, I, I do think that is, that is a problem. I do think that's disappointing.
2: Aaron, thank you for joining me. My pleasure, Michael. Always a pleasure on a Friday night. A momentous week in politics. And uh, let's see what comes next. Have
1: a fabulous weekend. I hope your Saturday or Sunday plans... Have not been cancelled. I will try and get over the absence of Hackney Carnival from my calendar. Thanks again, as always, for tuning in. We'll be back on Monday at 7 p.m. You've been watching Tisky Sour on Navara Media. Good night. This broadcast is brought to you by Navara Media. Go to navaramediacom support.